I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. If poetry failed me, um, I wouldn't stop it, but I would really need to wise up and get a job to support my family. I, would, I was not going to be the person who just tinkered with their hobby while you know, somebody else supports them. I could, I didn't, I was, I felt too guilty to do that. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Ocean Vuong is 34 years old and one of the literary world's most celebrated contemporary writers. As of last year, he's also a tenured faculty member at NYU, which has meant spending time back in New York City, where he lived for most of his 20s. When we spoke, Ocean was wrapping up the spring semester and ready to return home to Western Massachusetts. I'm not much of a city slicker, um, <laughs> so... <laughs> So I, I miss the sound of crickets. I didn't realize there's no crickets in the city. My goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, the sound of crickets, you know, alleviates your blood pressure because the crickets only sing when there's no predator around. So I haven't heard a, a darn cricket in months. So I'm, I'm waiting to hear hmm. one. You're safe. It's the sound of nature telling you, for now, we're safe. Um, yeah, yeah. I have a really robust community of folks in Western Mass, and we have folks like really like making a life. They're ready to kind of settle into something with longevity and care. Your favorite poet, uh, you might talk to them one day. The next day, you might do a meal train for them because they've just had surgery or something. It's very different than the city. The city is a great marketplace. You know, many people can make here. I can't make here. I have to make somewhere else, and then I bring my wares to the market, and then that's where it engages with the world. But most of my best thinking happens in solitude. You're getting ready to extract yourself from the city in just a few weeks. Um, what's, like, on your list of things that you want to do in New York City to, to, like, that you can do for fun before you, before this season ends? Okay, so many of you don't know this about me, but I am... Um, a diehard Knicks fan. <laughs> I wasn't um, expecting this. <laughs> um, and um, so, uh, and it's, it's actually very mimetic of my life as a poet being a Knicks fan. If anyone's been a Knicks fan in the past, you know, 25 years, it's brutal. It, it's at this point akin to, you know, m- sadomasochism um but we are finally 
uh, good in the playoffs. And my goal is to kind of do this very quintessential um, normal thing, which is to go to a sports bar mm -hmm. and cheer for the Knicks and just be amongst people cheering for the Knicks. And I don't know if that's going to be a good experience um, because I, I don't know if sports bar is where I belong. I highly doubt it, but, but part of my, my fantasy is to, to, to be in a sports bar with my brother and have this um, uh, weight of collective exuberance for the New York Knickerbockers, which by the way, <laughs> is the only team I know of named after pants. Um, and I think that's also <laughs> why I love them. Ocean told me he became a Knicks fan growing up because he and his family could pick up their games for free if they moved the TV antenna just the right way. This was in and around Hartford, Connecticut. His mom worked at a nail salon. They had arrived together from Vietnam when Ocean was two. Ocean first moved to New York City in 2008 after taking community college classes in Connecticut. Initially, the plan was to study marketing at Pace University. Um... I went into this marketing class, and it was one of those giant halls. And there was, on, on an overhead screen, on a projector, there was a giant, be laughing, beautiful baby. And it had all these brands on its faces. It was just some Photoshop, funny icebreaker thing that the professor started. And it was like a horror movie. Like, it was like a huge baby in this dark lecture hall filled with like coca-cola and you know chevrolet and it was supposed to be like haha like you know branding is uh, funny and and i was like wow i am way over my head like it's not even that i was i felt superior morally superior to everybody i just felt completely alien hmm. um and i was more overwhelmed than like disgusted i didn't even have the wherewithal to be disgusted I was just filled with deep personal shame. Um, and I just walked out and I walked across the Brooklyn Bridge. And I never signed out, so I don't know how they feel about it. I guess I, guess, I, guess I want to say to Pace University, sorry and thank you um, for believing in me. And so also sorry, I guess, you know, for just walking out. So you walked out, crossed the bridge... And then soon after, you started going to open mic nights to read your work? Yeah, I was doing that while I was a student. Um, and I started in the back of bars. You know, I, at one point I read at, um, in the basement of St. Veronica's Church in Chelsea. There was a series and you just walk down. And sometimes there was this, this defunct thing called the New York City Poetry Calendar. And sometimes you, you go to like a bar that there's supposed to be a reading and it's been canceled for like a year. <laughs> and then you stand there for an hour. <laughs> You've like worked yourself up to perform and it's like a closed sign when you get there. Oh. <laughs> yeah, this is back in, you know, 2007. So, so no iPhone, you know, so you got to, it's very analog. You, you show up and you just hope there's poetry. And sometimes there's just jocks screaming at each other. And then you, then you go home. Um, but uh, you go down this musty basement and there's boxes of, of crucifixes and Bibles. And it was a mixture of like retired 
you know, Chelsea or Lower East Side weirdos and, you know, and I, and they really took me in because I was the youngest by like 30 years. Um, and, and then there was also unhoused folks, you know, coming in with all of their possessions. We're talking entire shopping carts, plastic bags of all theirs. And they, they were there to, to be warm for a little bit, but also they had poems. Poetry mattered to those folks. And I remember listening to my first Shakespearean sonnet out loud. I'm, I'm like 20 years old. I read Shakespeare as a high school. I've never heard it performed. And it was this woman, uh, her name was Marion. She had these, she collected cans and she would bring all of her cans in. And when it was her time, to come up, uh, and our podium was just a little bandstand that the church band uses. And she would recite, you know, these incredible sonnets, and she would use her finger to pace out the iambic pentameter. And, uh, you know, and then they got to know me, and, and these folks would bring paper bags full, like sandwich paper bags, like lunch bags full of old books for me to read. Uh, but, and I think a lot of that is just completely lost now. Uh, a pipe would burst, and then it just gets it's over. But it's also where I learned how to write uh, in a formal manner. I mean, I was stepping into this pantheon um, that I had had no knowledge of, except I felt it as a person. I said, "This is whatever this is. If it's if it's in a bar or in the back of a church, I want to do this." It just sustained me. Um, as I figured out what to do with my life, you know, I was so ashamed to go home to Connecticut uh, to my mother who was telling every customer that her son is at Pace University, first generation, he's going to be a businessman on Wall Street. And I had, didn't have the heart to go home empty-handed, so I just lived this big, big lie, you know. And I, I told myself, marketing is basically lying for a corporation. <laughs> so I'm learning how to lie. <laughs> It's, a, it's lying for a corporation, and poetry is lying for yourself. Huh. So I just figured, you know, I might, if I'm going to lie, I might as well lie for myself. And have, at least have some fun. Hang on. What, how is poetry lying for yourself? Well, it's about myth-making. Huh. I think the, the work of the poet, in many ways, is to work in the same vein as the marketer. Because the marketer takes language and recalibrates a narrative to get you to buy something or to get you to vote a certain way. Uh, the poet, you know, takes the same language and recalibrates it towards something else, something that is not necessarily has allegiance to a company or a regime. So we, we're both in the same trenches, uh, but the poet has a much more nebulous web of lies because it's hard to figure out its final function. Um, because often the function might be wonder, bewilderment, a kind of joy for the world, both wow and also yikes. Speaking of uh, crafting your own narrative, how long did you keep that secret from your mom about being a student at Pace? How long did she think you were doing something that you weren't doing anymore? Uh, the whole way until I finally graduated from Brooklyn College. Are you serious? Yeah. She didn't yeah. know you'd switch to English and... No, no. Ocean eventually got that English degree from Brooklyn College, a public college in New York. 
When Ocean first enrolled, he was staying in Queens, and getting to school took a two-and-a-half-hour commute each way by bus. It was also how I was able to read Tolstoy on those two hours. That's what I was going to say, like, forced reading time was probably useful when you're, when you're a student. Oh. The commute. Yeah. Yeah. Around this time, is that when you met your partner, Peter? Yeah. How did you two meet? Uh, oh, it's a little, a, 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 I think a defunct website now called OkCupid. It's like a free <laughs> dating website. Yeah. I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was free. That was why. Um, and uh, it was really sweet. You know, I think we just kind of really hit it off. But I was in no state of, to date anybody. You know, I, I, I was trying to fool myself into having a normal New York City life. But I, I very quickly I said, you know, I, I need to get my my crap together um and I, there's no so we we became kind of friends mm-hmm. um just checking in on each other and uh i got into brooklyn um but i still didn't have housing and i just started couch surfing for a few um, months starting with friends and but that that's very uh you know nebulous and precarious you know i would just be sometimes sleeping in the kitchen hmm. In a sleeping bag, um, and then that suddenly dried up. I didn't have any connections, and most of my friends were people who were also transient. And uh, so one day, you know, I was talking to Peter, and it came up, and he said, "You know, I have I have a grandmother who lives in Richmond Hill. Um, she's alone there. She won't, you know, she has dementia, but she has enough wherewithal to want to stay. It's her. It was a, a huge." Uh, part of her life. And I lived there and that's how I finished my degree, kind of being this impromptu um, nurse. And and Peter kept visiting. And at first I was like, are, are you here for your grandmother? Or are you, what's going on here? You know? And then we're we're eating like a TV dinner one night watching The Office, um, which because of his grandmother was dementia, she kept thinking it was the news. Because you know, like there was these like interview segments in yeah the they're talking straight to camera yeah, yeah. so she's like when is the weather coming we're, we're like we're trying to explain to her that it's a it's a show um and then i'm like i looked around and i said wow we're kind of like this we're already like a weird family um and so i don't know remember who asked who but i think we just kind of started to live like that for a while and it, it just became it was a very beautiful thing because it, it was just like oh we've we, we just all love each other yeah, um, and then that was that, that was fifteen years ago. Wow, I am happy to report that OKCupid is still bringing people together. Okay, <laughs> thank goodness. <laughs> well, I, I'm I, I, I'm happy to te- to be a testimony uh, to its <laughs> to its vibrant success. Oh, um, how long did his grandmother live? How long were you living together? She was eighty four. When I met her, and she she got up to about ninety ninety one. I forgot when her birthday was, um, and that was kind of about the timeline for um, frontal, you know, uh, frontal lobe dementia, which is what she had. Um, and so to see that full decline was very very hard. So many people have said it better than I can, but you really um, lose sight of of somebody um, right in front of you. Um, but she went into a nursing home. Um, after a while, and yeah, it was it was like the first big hit that we felt together as a couple. Hmm. So Peter studied law. 
you practiced as an attorney and then became your manager. Is that right? Uh, I, I guess not officially a manager. I mean, we kind of just share, um, you know, we have strengths and weaknesses. And he's a law, he was a he's a lawyer and an analyst. Right? That's kind of his strength. We 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 kind of have a one two punch where I make up all the crazy dreams that are most likely not possible, and then he kind of like manifests them into material reality. Mm. You know, like when we're like renovating a, a room, I say like I, I want like a a grayish light around 4 p.m., but then it, and then, and then he like, I describe this in very abstract ways, and then he tries to make it manifest. And uh, so we live our life that way, you know. Um, in some ways, I feel kind of like a child actor, you know. My, my literary career happened so fast. It happened before I finished my education. Um, my book was published two months before I graduated from graduate school. And, uh, and I was already giving lectures and going on tour, you know. So I, I, f I felt like I never had the chance to learn practical things, um, like driving, for example, um, how tax works. I just put so much into my work to support my family because the anxiety was after not being in business school was still like, how do I turn this into a life for my family? That first poetry collection of oceans is called Night Sky with Exit Wounds, and it includes poems about his parents, love, and the legacies of violence from the Vietnam War. It won multiple awards, and the New York Times called it one of the best 10 books of 2016. Not poetry books, top 10 of all the year's books. And again, it came out before he was finished with school. Coming up, Ocean tells me about providing for his family, including his younger half-brother, whom he's cared for since their mother's death in 2019. He says, when I go to your events, I'm your bodyguard. You know, and I'm like, um, we're both like scrawny, you know, five foot five. You know, like there's no way <laughs> you're not guarding anyone. But, but, but in, in another sense, he's absolutely right. I, I do feel an aura of protection when he's around me. Warmer months are here, which means, among other things, it's wedding season. Weddings are all about the themes of this show. Till death do us part, sex on the wedding night or not, and definitely money. Sometimes lots of it for a single or multi-day affair. If you are currently planning a wedding, and specifically if money is a source of tension from how much you want to spend on your wedding to how to pay for it, we want to hear from you. Is money a sticking point between you and your soon-to-be spouse or your families? Do you and your fiancé have different ideas of how much it should cost and where do those ideas come from? Is one side of the family chipping in more than the other? And does that come with certain strings attached? We also want to hear from those of you who are in the wedding business, whether you're a photographer, a planner, or a baker. How do you deal with couples or families who have wildly different ideas about what they want to spend? 
tell us. Record a voice memo and email it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. We want to hear about your wedding plans for a future episode. With what seems like an endless amount of information at our fingertips, we tend to forget that wondering about things is really part of the journey to finding answers we're looking for. So when it comes to the hot topics of Israel, Judaism, and Zionism, there's so much to wonder about right now that it's hard to know where to turn. Enter the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked, Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Biton and Noam Weissman as they tackle these topics and the uncomfortable questions that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. So check it out. Subscribe to Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wondering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. In 2019, Ocean Vuong turned 31 years old. That spring, he'd published his debut novel, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, a blockbuster book that took the form of a son writing a letter to his mother. In September of that year, he received a MacArthur Genius Grant Award. And then in November of 2019, Ocean's mother died of breast cancer a loss he examines in his latest poetry collection called Time is a Mother. After his mother's death, Ocean's younger half-brother came to live with Ocean and Peter in Massachusetts, and they've all lived together now for about four years. He was her baby, um, and he lived with her all his life. And as much as it was painful to lose a mother, it was even more painful to watch a 21-year-old brother to watch him lose his mother. Um, and that that was actually what was unbearable for me. You know, I, I have language, I have literature, I have resources, and I have a wider network because of my profession with friends um, and connections. And, and so my grief was kind of easily understood by those around me. And my brother's dyslexic. So his grief was so private and alone. And so I had to really tend to it. Um, it was important for me um, to, to get him therapy, right? Talk therapy, to check up on him and to sign him up for, you know, classes, um, workshops, the gym, uh, help him get a job. So all of a sudden I was kind of like a, a father, something I never thought I would be. Um, We're 10 years apart, and all of a sudden I have a grown man who's also just starting his life without a mother, um, without a father, really. He's estranged from his father. And uh, I have to kind of restart everything. Um, But he's also much more capable in many things than I am. My brother drives very well. My partner drives very well. Enough people I, I in the household to drive well. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, I did the whole thing where you 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 practice in a parking lot, mm-hmm. and I tried to get a license. I failed five times. There's like too many buttons. I get so overwhelmed. I was like, I'm now I'm in this steel torpedo. Anybody can die. 
And I don't know where this car ends or where it begins. So I just, <laughs> I don't have the brain for it. You don't so, need to do it. Uh, yeah. So a bicycle, two wheels, uh, handles, that's as much as I can do. I don't have the mind the way he does. He's very analytical, uh, very calculating. Um, he's like, he's, he has like a, like a, a military mind that like he could see what's ahead, what's coming. Um, and, uh, he's a good driver, as you said. Yeah. Very yeah. good driver. <laughs> yeah. He can go to, he, he loves his day job. Like he, he's a, a manager at Dick Sporting Goods in, in the shoe department. And I've never seen someone who loves going to a nine to five job as much as he does. He, he gets to his job an hour early to like to prep and arrange things. Um, and that's the kind of person he is. He's just totally devoted to what he does. And in that way, we actually share a lot of things, you know, like when I'm working on a project, you know, it's like I tell, I tell my family, I said, if, I, it was, if it wasn't for you guys, if it's just me, I would be in a studio with a, just a single mattress surrounded by books stacked from the floor up. And I would eat Stouffer's, you know, frozen dinners. That was, and I could, and that would be a happy life for me. Just mostly in the mind, living, that's a, that's a beautiful life. But because of the people <laughs> I, <laughs> because of the people I love, you know, I, um, I, I, I have to learn these things and see the limitations. And so it's very humbling for me to be, you know, oh, Ocean Bong, winner of whatever, whatever award, tenure professor, um, best-selling author, but also being really vulnerable with my limitations. Mm-hmm. And he stays. He stays in Western Mass when you're in New York City. Is he with you, or is he with you now? He stays there. Yeah. He stays uh-huh. there. And it's interesting that you say you feel, in some ways, like a father. Um, when when are there moments where you realize, oh, we're brothers? Like, like because you're describing both that he. There's things that he's better at than you are, and there's ways in which you have tried to tend to him and, and, and take care of him like a parent would. And the thing I find interesting about siblings where there's a big age difference is the way that those flips can be can take you by surprise, like where you feel like you're brushing up against each other and where you ha- do have a very clear power dynamic. Yeah, yeah. Um a lot of the times, you know, I think it's um, the setup has a hierarchical power dynamic. But when we're when we travel together, um, when we're kind of like up against the world, if, if if you know what I mean, it's like like I don't travel very well. I lose I, I lose sight of gates. I, I daydream, and then the plane leaves. It happens all the time. So I don't travel alone. Um, so when my 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 partner. Um, can't make it my brother would fill in and he doesn't know where we're supposed to go and sometimes neither do i but he calms me down just being there yeah my blood pressure is much calmer with him around i can't explain it it's like a talisman and uh we couldn't be further from each other but there's a there's an absolute kind of allegiance to each other that i can't explain Hmm. when you described like that that fantasy life of living with a mattress on the floor surrounded by books and eating TV dinners, how that that in one way could be enough for you. Um, when did you discover, like, what made you realize that that wasn't the creative life that you wanted, that you instead 
it was important to you to live with family, to create family? Or, or did it sort of unfold because people needed you? I think definitely the latter. Um, I, I'm someone that could, I, I never get bored. You know, I never know boredom. Um, and I don't say that to boast. There are many things I can't do, but I, I've just never, I, I can be with my mind and myself for unending time and be perfectly content. That scenario with the mattress and the books, it sounds like a, a slice of heaven to me, but we don't, we don't live uh, in a vacuum. And a lot of that has to do with reciprocal bonds. Uh, how, what do we owe each other? And I've always felt that because that mattress and the books is not really a choice. I don't, it's not really an option because so many people depend on me. My cousins, my aunts, um, my brother, my community, um, that while I'm here, I want to make it the best it could be for everybody involved. And I learned that that's actually a joyful way to live. That when I decorate my home, I don't decorate it just so it's beautiful. I want it so that when my friends and my family come, uh, they can feel at ease and relax. Like it could heal them. I, and I don't mean that lightly. And when we moved to this home that we're living in, we moved in there two years ago, we purposely chose one with extra room so that friends can kind of come as a refuge. You know, like, you know, an artist's life is very precarious. You, you have to enter a lottery in a way to get a quote-unquote fellowship, which gives you three to four weeks in a cabin in the woods to just get it done before you're thrown back into child-rearing work, you know, family crises. And this happens throughout our lives. We're the only vocation where your profession and your professionalization does almost nothing to guarantee you time to do your work. And so now, you know, when a friend is struggling and they need time, we just say, come on up. Come on up, there's a room for you. Like, we'll cook, we'll slide the, the meal under the door. You don't have to talk to us, just rest. But also losing my mother, embracing my brother into my life, you know, just, it wasn't even a choice. It was like, of course, my brother's gonna live with me. Um, made me realize that I could build space for other people, that my success is at its best is actually to create space that can protect the people I love. Hmm. I can be satisfied with the sentence, but I don't know if that gives me true joy. I'm truly happy when I know that my creative work, language, which weighs absolutely nothing, is immaterial, ethereal, has created a home that can sustain and bolster the people I love. It, it, it feels like a magic trick or a dream that I'm still waiting sometimes to wake up from. Who or how do you protect your solitude when there are needs, so many needs coming at you both from the marketplace and the the reality of being a sort of 
cultural and literary celebrity and also the needs of people you love and the communities you love. How do you, how do you carve out the solitude to keep making sure you have time to make your art? So far, it's, it's tricky, but I've always been a good compartmentalizer. And um, I tell my students this too, because the, the question my students always ask is, how do I like send my work out there while also getting back to work, right? Um, and, 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 and so I think what I do is I, I don't have a secretary, uh, a real secretary, but I have, a, I have a secretary of myself. So when I have to promote the books and even when I'm teaching, when I'm doing the you know, bureaucratic work of an institution, I send this representative, um, another part of me, Secretary Vong. Mm-hmm. He comes out and he's, he does all the, the things and I kind of sacrifice him while I save my, my heart for my family. So I have seasons to my life, you know. Uh, when the book comes out, we work together, my publisher and I, but there has to be a, an end to the season and then I have to go into the other seasons. You know, I say to my publicist, I'm going to give 100% and then it's going to be over. And then I give 100% to my family. And uh, who knows how sustainable that is. Right now, it works pretty well. But for me, I don't know how to give 50 to anything. I only know one, one gear and it is total. I just have one other question for you, and that is, um, when Time as a Mother first came out, you talked about um, how writing this collection, you felt like you, it was a moment in your life when you felt like you wanted to be the most ambitious, and you could be the most ambitious. You felt the most free, and you said, I have to do everything here, is how you described it to The New Yorker when you were thinking about this collection. And it just, it made me wonder, in this moment, when you think about what the ambition is for your next work or the work that you are, you know, still is to come, what is, what is the ambition? Or is that not the right word for what your motivation is? That's a great question. That's what I'm trying to figure out. Um, one of my heroes is Annie Dillard. In a very formative, formative moment for me, she was on NPR, and she's, there was kind of like a, a surprise interview with Annie Dillard, who you know, often doesn't speak to journalists. So everyone thought it was going to be an announcement of a big book. And instead, she says, I'm finished as a writer. I've done my work. And I remember standing in my apartment as a young writer, and being absolutely enraptured, totally in affinity with what this woman was saying. Because, and, and, and this host was kind of perplexed. I said, well, what's, is something wrong with you? Right? And, that's, and it's interesting that kind of like the first response, like, this is a pathological result. And, and Diller said, no, I, I just, I, I woke up, I went to my working desk, and I realized that I had nothing to add that I have not already done. And I said to myself, that's, that's how I want to measure my life as an artist. You know, often we're told, what's your dream? How many books do you want to write? 
What do you want to do? What are your plans? And I think my only plan is to write in a way that I could stop, or if I had to stop, I would be completely content. I want to get to a point where I can get to where Dillard got to, perhaps even sooner. Sooner would be even better, right? To, to, to quickly arrive at a moment when you look at your body of work and you said, my goodness, I was put here on earth and I was blessed with this gift and I used it all to do this thing that satisfied me to the bone. Um, I don't know if I feel that yet, but I strive to arrive where my hero, Annie Dillard, arrived at, to stop well. Oh, I just love that. Um, thank you, Secretary Wang. It was wonderful <laughs> to spend time with you. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you, thank you. And yeah. go Knicks. Yeah, go Knicks. <laughs> go pantaloons. <laughs> That's Ocean Wong. His latest poetry collection, Time is a Mother, is just out in paperback. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Afi Yellowduke. The rest of the team is Ileana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Christian Reedy. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at AnnaSalePix. That's P-I-C-S. The show is at DeathSexMoney on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Sierra Catcher in Richmond, Virginia, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Sierra and support what we do here by going to DeathSexMoney.org slash donate. And you'll want to know that before the Knicks were knocked out of the playoffs, Ocean did get to a sports bar in New York City to watch them play with his brother. Ocean says he's now rooting for the Denver Nuggets since they've never won a championship. But his heart, always with the Knicks. My whole family were into the Knicks. My grandmother, my mom, um, you know, my grandmother was, was so sympathetic to Jeff Van Gundy hmm. because she just said every week, his hair, more of his hair is missing. You know, it, it's such a stressful job. And she felt such sympathy for, for him. And she would say things like, when we're not winning, they switched the rims in, in between commercial breaks. They gave us a smaller rim. You know, that's... <laughs> you know, it's, it's so funny. Oh, what a know. fan. That's a true yeah. believer right there. <laughs> I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.